has long been abandoned. Tabulations of each side's nuclear arsenal, which were once parsed with scholastic flair, are now hard to come by. No one serious would dream of presenting such statistics as a measure of the balance of power, however that phrase might be defined. So it's an ideal time, before the renewed debate is taken over by Baroque abstractionists, to ask some basic questions. What does the United States need nuclear weapons for? And how many, of what sort, are enough? The Details of Doomsday Public discussion of these questions has always been disingenuous. President John F. Kennedy's Defense Secretary, Robert McNamara, devised a formula for finite deterrence, a concept popularized as Mutual Assured Destruction, or MAD. If, after a Soviet first strike, enough U.S. weapons survived to destroy the Soviet Union's 200 largest cities in a retaliatory blow, then that would be enough to deter the Russians from contemplating a first strike to begin with. The damage done by any additional weapons, McNamara argued, would be so marginal as to be superfluous. In fact, this formula was only the Secretary's way of capping the military's appetite. The Joint Chiefs of Staff wanted 10,000 ICBMs. McNamara held them to 1,000. Even in McNamara's day, the U.S. missiles were never aimed at Soviet cities or population centers per se. They were always aimed mainly at Soviet military targets. Still, the warheads and bombs were so enormous at the time, many delivering an explosive punch of well over a megaton, that tens or hundreds of millions of people would have been killed anyway, not to mention the millions more around the world who would have died from radioactive fallout. The first coordinated U.S. nuclear war plan, known as the PSYOP, for Single Integrated Operational Plan, was drawn up at the Strategic Air Command, SAC, in Omaha, Nebraska in 1960, just before Kennedy was elected. It supplied a rationale for as many bombs and missiles as the military desired. Every remotely valuable facility in the Soviet Union, and in Communist China and Eastern Europe, was designated a target and officers in SAC's Joint Strategic Target Planning Staff decreed that several particularly valuable targets had to be destroyed with a 90% probability, others with a 98% probability. Under these rules, several weapons would have to be fired at those targets, and thus the military would have to buy several times as many weapons as might seem reasonable at first glance. In 1961, just after the start of Kennedy's term, McNamara revised the PSYOP to give the president an option to launch limited strikes, just against Soviet strategic military targets, ICBMs, submarine pens and bomber bases, avoiding cities. Still, SAC's requirements remained enormous. And as the Soviets built up their nuclear arsenal through the 1960s, Largely in response to the U.S. buildup, the requirements grew proportionately. McNamara's 1,000 ICBM limit remained in place, so the U.S. military developed missiles tipped with several warheads, 
each of which could be flung at a separate target. These were known as MIRVs, for Multiple Independently Targetable Reentry Vehicles. When Soviet and American ICBMs were MIRVed, they became at once the most lethal weapons, and because of that, the most vulnerable. The sheer existence of these weapons created a new sort of instability. In a crisis, each side might have an incentive to launch a first strike with its ICBMs, if just to preempt the other side's launching a first strike with its ICBMs. This situation, which theorists dubbed crisis instability, spawned a small library of nuclear exchange scenarios replete with deceptively precise calculations. They all envisioned a U.S. president and a Soviet premier firing hundreds or thousands of nuclear warheads at each other's country, killing tens or hundreds.